Okay, folks, so um, we are back with episode five officially of season two, um, although we had a bonus last week, Lovecraft Country, which I enjoyed. Um, so this episode is about language access, um, and it relates specifically to my guest, Anar Parikh's um, research where she was working in Chicago doing ethnography on basically when she was helping them get out the vote. Um, now that was during the 2018 midterms. And let me tell you, at least here in New York, I'm not sure there's going to be a lot of problem getting people out to vote this time. But we'll see what actually happens. This is, of course, the last um, episode being released before the election. And it'll stay up for a week after. I mean, it's going to stay up forever, but, um, you know, the next one will be released in a different world. I'm telling you the next episode I actually recorded a long time ago because I don't even want to have to think about reacting to what happens next week because I don't know what it's going to be. Um, so, you know, uh, anyway, this episode's really interesting. Um, her work is really valuable and compelling. She challenges me a lot in this episode, um, which is good. Um, I, I think, you know, I think it's useful when I get challenged. And, uh, yeah, uh, before I forget, I have a few more patrons to thank. Um, I have to thank Jenny Rothman, um, Gail Shuck, Cassie Miller, uh, Sam Blind. I don't know if it's Blind. It might be Blind. Um, Mark Bonich and Kelsey Swift and Catherine Wally. So thank all of you for your support on Patreon. The link for anybody who's listening and hasn't supported yet is in the show description. Uh, I understand a lot of people, um, you know, things are tough. Things are tough in general. Things are particularly tough this year. However, if you are, you know, more senior, and I don't mean in age, but in in power, you know, maybe you're a professor or something, you listen to this, or you're just farther along in your career than I am, you know, if you're able to, to toss a few bucks to support the work, I would greatly appreciate that. Um, okay, so, language access. Okay, so welcome back to Unstandardized English. I am JPB Gerald, which you know because I said that three minutes ago. Uh, I am here with Anara Parikh, and we are going to discuss some of the research that she's done and some of the things that are related to it that are very relevant in this year of 2020. So, uh, Anar, if you want to induce, introduce yourself and some of the work you've done, some of the stuff that you're finishing up with your dissertation now, maybe, and then we'll just sort of go on to whatever comes up when we talk. And first of all, thank you for joining me. Yeah, I should say that. Cool. Thank you for having me. Um... Happy to be here. Um, yeah, so um, my name's Anar Parikh, as you already know, but I am a um, PhD candidate in the Department of Anthropology at Brown. And I my work is broadly on South Asian American um, civic engagement and political belonging in the United States. And so um, 
I am currently really in the thick of <laughs> dissertation writing. And so every day it kind of changes how I talk about it, but I'm mostly interested in how um, investments in various kinds of political projects, whether that is voting or running for office or um, community organizing are sites where people negotiate um, citizenship, identity, and belonging in the context of race, ethnicity, migration, and diaspora. So um, that's both like get out the vote campaigns as well as like how people talk about what it means to be South Asian and civically engaged in uh, like broader forums as well. So I now have three directions in which I could go because I always come up with questions when people say these things. I'm gonna focus though. This is very important. I need to focus. And I know that you did a lot of the dissertation research in a Get Out the Vote campaign in Chicago um, in 2018, I guess. Um, mm -hmm. So can you describe a little bit about what you were looking at there and some of what you found, although I'm sure you want to save some of the surprises for the dissertation itself. Uh, that's actually the chapter that I'm working on. So the good news is that it's like um, right on Top of, mind. Top of my head, kind of. <laughs> uh, but yes, I, um, so when I started my dissertation research, I started by, uh, or my field work in Chicago, I started by kind of like volunteering and interning at a couple of um, immigrant rights organizations, one of which was a um, organization that predominantly serves South Asians on the far north side of Chicago. And after about four months of volunteering there, a position opened up um, for a civic engagement coordinator, which was basically to organize the um, Get Out the Vote campaign for the 2018 election. And the organization's, uh, the grant that they had was for a longer period of that period of time, but just given what the schedule was for my research, I was just there for 10 months. But uh, basically that involved coordinating all of the various um, nitty gritty pieces of the organization's um, voter outreach, registration and mobilization program for the 2018 election. So starting with the primary election in March, 2018, and then going through to the November, 2018 general election. And there was also a gubernatorial election along with the congressional midterms in Illinois at that time. And it was a pretty straightforward, I think, nonprofit um, GOTV campaign, which means that it was nonpartisan, but um, we were primarily reaching out to um, South Asian and then some Asian American voters in on, on the north side of Chicago and then some of the nearby suburbs. So there was also a language access element which involved um, also like recruiting volunteers who were bilingual or multilingual um, in English as well as other South Asian languages to be able to talk to people on the phone in Hindi or Urdu or Gujarati um, in terms of like delivering whatever the data like the minutia information of the election as well as kind of reiterating the stakes of their participation. So I don't know um, specifically what the 
demographics of like far north of Chicago. I know you're saying that these groups are there, but I mean, like, are these areas heavily these you know um, you know made up of, of of these groups, or are they a minority in this area? You know that sort of thing. Because I know what the areas in like New York are like, where they are. I mean, they're not pretty pretty they're pretty close to where I live, but like I don't know where the different people live in the Chicago area. Yeah, so the north side of, well, I mean, Chicago is, is vast, and it, it, it kind of runs from north to, it's very long, basically. Um, so there are many, uh, I would say there's many north sides and many south sides. <laughs> um, so like, in the same way that Hyde Park is the south side, and then there's also the south side that's past Hyde Park. There's also the north side that's immediately north of downtown and then there's the far north side which are like basically the it's like basically the last neighborhood in the city before it becomes Skokie or Lincolnwood and um the specific neighborhood Westridge is a heavily South Asian neighborhood so Devon Avenue is the um central South Asian business district in in the city of Chicago um which includes South Asian restaurants and retailers. Um, the, and I'm, I'm not sure about the exact number, so I can't tell you if it's, if it's like a, like an actual majority within the city, like within that neighborhood, um, because it is also a predominantly or er, a heavily Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. Um, but the, that area as, as well as the, neighboring suburbs of Lincolnwood, Skokie, um, Niles, and Morton Grove are also um, suburbs where there are large populations of South Asians. So that is an area where there are, there is just a lot, there are large concentrations of South Asian neighborhoods. And then as a whole, I mean, and this is one of the um, factors in my research and like part of why I ended up choosing Chicago is that there are language access protections in the Voting Rights Act um, that determine or that create mandates for language, bilingual voting materials. The language around this is all very clunky. So I'm gonna try to make it as straightforward as possible, but it's something that I get wrapped up in too because it's very technical, uh, but basically jurisdictions that have either 5% or 10,000 people within a language minority community are eligible or are protected under the language minority provisions of the Voting Rights Act. And at, as of 2016, there were three jurisdictions. So like those are mostly county jurisdictions that require protections for Asian Indians. Um, and that's based on the census categories, not on the way people actually identify themselves. But for Asian Indians. Um, and the three places are Cook County in Illinois, which is Chicago, uh, the broader county of Chicago, Queens County in New York, and Middlesex, Middlesex County in New Jersey. Um, so in that- and I, I live in Queens, so yeah. Right, exactly. Um, and, and so um, there is the population in Chicago, and then the, there are also other suburban districts that are far, like, uh, much farther out that are also, that have larger South Asian populations as well. But my work was primarily in the city. 
Oh, that's interesting. Because I'm, I'm just remembering Chicago being long because I, I ran the marathon and I was, you go all the way up to the top and then you come down. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's actually my fastest marathon. But, you know, because it's interesting thing about these different cities because I, I can only relate it to the cities I've spent time in. I spent three days in Chicago, so I don't, you know, I don't know anything. Um, but like thinking about like Philadelphia, New York, Boston, and DC, where I've spent pretty long, you know, considerable amounts of time and thinking about the ways that people are obviously very segregated but the each city has its own flavor of how integrated people are into the rest of the city so did you find when you were there that obviously that you know these not it's an enclave or whatever you want to say but like um that the people were pretty and i don't mean integrated in terms of like not segregated yeah, I mean, I know that's the opposite of segregated, but, but you know what I mean in terms of like, um, do you feel that the city, I don't know about Chicago, but like the, the part of the north side that they were closest to um, treated them as, in, you know, in, in a really bifurcated, like they're over there way, or was it more, I don't know what another word is, you know, mellifluous, <laughs> a word from fifth um, grade. So I think, I mean, I would say that like, because of like distance. I mean, I think that cities are very neighborhood based. And so like, I guess, so I would say that like, at least my experience, especially, I mean, I, especially once I moved closer to that neighborhood was that like the bulk of my life in the city was within like that particular corner of the, like that particular corner of the city like but i mean i think that those the neighborhood like city the the neighborhoods are segregated but then there is also still vast amounts of like diversity of along lines of not just race and ethnicity but also class and you know like various other factors even within those neighborhoods or particular pockets of the city so I think in that sense, there is like a kind of flow between neighborhoods and, and, and people, but like, it's not easy without a car and like really with a car to get from the north side of the city to Hyde Park, for example, right? Like it's, you know, at least an hour, um, like, it's basically a difference. It's like basically going to a different city in some ways. But that being said, I mean, there's still like what a lot of the organizers that I would talk to, it would say that like similar problems of policing uh, of black and brown people exist on the, like on, on the north side as they do on the south side, right? So like the scale, uh, at, at least in, in these like immigrant neighborhoods that have a lot of black and brown immigrants. Um, so in that sense, like, I wouldn't say that because it's a neighborhood that's of primarily brown immigrants that the people there don't experience policing or that they don't experience um, like, uh, like poverty or racism or like the inequities that come with racial segregation. So does that make sense? Like, yeah, no, I mean, I'm following you. 
you know, like I, I, so I'm like not saying anything I, because I'm just listening. But yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm just, I'm, I'm, I, like, I'm just thinking through it as well. But the, which is basically just to say that, like, it doesn't lead into an exceptionalist discourse that this, like, you know, that that this neighborhood is somehow better, off, you know, somehow better off because it's farther away from like what people think of as they're they're there are different problems and then like some of the problems uh are the same basically and and like westridge for example was where like was one of the like highest rates of covid cases in the city of chicago just um, like queens exactly um, <laughs> so yeah um so when you i have so in that experience and then also just in, in your your work in general um which you you mentioned Gujarati? I hopefully I I I know I'm saying it generally correctly, but I'm I'm getting the actual nuances. Um, are there other languages, or is it is it just is that the major one that you worked with in terms of getting people um, language access for voting materials and for other civic engagement? So, I I mean I will also say that well, okay. So I speak I'm I'm a native speaker of Gujarati, so I grew up or like a heritage speaker I don't I mean I don't know but what does native mean whatever right? <laughs> any of those things but I grew up basically speaking Gujarati in my household um and I feel comfortable like communicating everyday stuff in Gujarati and having conversations and then I spent a little bit of time in India and it's similar enough that I can like muddle my way through Hindi and Urdu so usually in my interactions with clients and then uh, on the phone I would kind of like, but on the other hand, I like things related to election speak and like, in, like. You I mean, you basically speak. have to be a lawyer. It's, you know, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, like, I feel way more comfortable speaking in English than really even in, in, in Gujarati. And like, so I was using some combination of English, Gujarati, Hindi and Urdu-ish when I was talking to people. Um, at least as on like, so the language access laws, that's like on the government end. And that's like a, a more like formal or technical register of like creating like um, like the bilingual ballots or whatever. That's like a formal process that's hap happening like through the Board of Elections office. Whereas at least on the, um, nonprofit side, like the, our scripts were mostly in English. Um, and then we would kind of like myself and other like volunteers or staff would kind of like transliterate the script on the fly as we were talking um, to people, whether that was in Gujarati or English or like periodically we would get somebody who was Spanish speaking um, and somebody would have fluency in Spanish and then kind of just like ad hoc translate the script as they were speaking um and like at least as far and also as far as literacy goes like i through no choice of my own um did learn how to read gujarati and hindi to a certain extent because of my grandmother but the kind of like proficiency i would need to like read that kind of script in gujarati or hindi i don't i don't have that like i i can read it like in like a kindergarten or first grade level of like identifying letters but 
I can't read extended, I can't read extended scripts in either, in any of those languages. And Urdu has a different script altogether than um, Hindi and Gujarati. So it was kind of a combination of all, all four of those languages plus reading in English and then like translating verbally into one of them or vice versa. Uh, so what did you find as far as people's engagement? I mean, like, did you get out the vote? <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I like. Or I mean, if they're already voting, then, you know, you have to get a vote. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, it's like hard to tell because collecting like the data that like there are all of these different places where you could be collecting data and like a lot of what we were collecting was through whatever people would respond to like whatever people would answer when we asked them on the phone and then like whether or not they ended up going to the polls it would be um, a different story and I actually have not revisited the metrics in a long time but I mean um, in the in the three weeks before the November 2018 election, um, we probably ran like, I think 80 canvassing shifts and then like some like hundred and something phone banking shifts during like in that window. So, um, and I am also not really a quantitative collector. So I, Neither am I think I. that I, I'm not like, I don't have, numbers but i mean we were calling a lot of people and we were talking to a lot of people but what that means for like actually getting out the vote is and and we did actually also take i probably we probably took about 20 people from indo-american center to the early voting site in the couple of weeks leading up to the election um as well so i think scale wise it's like hard to tell like okay did i get out the vote in like an entire neighborhood that has however many thousand um, South Asian voters, but those conversations were definitely happening. But at the same time, like, and, and this is something that I am basically trying to work through in, in the chapter that I'm writing is that like, when we talk about elections and accessibility, are we focusing on the individual actions of voters and or even of like organizers who are tasked with mobilizing voters or with like the institutional structures that make voting among other systems like accessible to people who are marginalized as immigrants or um, in any number of other ways. So like I can say that I took however many people I got however many people to go vote but do I know if they voted for people who were in their best interest, who were working in their best interest? I don't know because as I'm like working on a nonprofit campaign, I was like, I'm, you know, required by law to be nonpartisan. Um, and so like when people didn't know who to vote for, I couldn't really provide them meaningful information other than like, these are the two people running. Um, and even like with resources that exist now, like Ballot Ready or other like voter guides, 
most of those are not in South, South Asian languages. Um, so I think there's like, like, what does it mean to get out the vote? I think there's like, there's so many levels to that, that is something that I'm definitely still parsing through uh, in my own mind, politically, as well as in my research. So I don't know if you follow the scuttlebutt around the internet in the last 24 hours. And for people who are, li <laughs> people who are listening, um, recording this on September 29th. So if people are just like, what do you mean? This was a month ago. Well, okay, leave me alone. But uh, there has been news that a bunch of people received uh, mail-in ballots in New York and they had the wrong person's name on it. Just entirely wrong. Um, and this is not surprising. People think, oh, it's because of what Trump's doing to the Postal Service. You know, there's that, that stuff's happening, but I, I just need to tell people the New York Board of Elections has been incompetent for a very long time, like a very long time. I, uh, when I moved overseas, I came back and um, they thought, so my name is Justin Pierce Baldwin Gerald, and they thought my name was Justin P. Gerald B. It's not, like, <laughs> the, the letter B is not a name, it's just not a last name. Um, if that had been it though, that's clearly some computer error. That's my name all screwed up. But I, I used to get two sets of mail every time I got something from the Board of Elections. And I would get one for Justin P. Gerald B. And I'd get one for, for Justin. So that's, that's good. Uh, but it said Justin, Mr. Mr. <laughs> just the letters MR and then MR. And, <laughs> and I'm just like, Hmm, because it's clearly automated, right? No one's reading this. Um, but like the worst is when at one point I was called for jury duty and they called these two fictional people <laughs> in my address to jury duty. Um, and I was like, I can't just not go. So I went and I said, this is wrong and this is not anyone's name. And I gave it to the guy and he just crumpled it up. And I'm like, this seems kind of, this doesn't seem like the official way to handle these things. But they stopped sending me mail for that. I'm saying all that to say, we are now in a very strange and important place with election and quote unquote getting out the vote because you know getting out is the problem uh but we all want people to vote so that we can have less fascism so like um i mean not probably not zero but less um and the i'm just thinking about all these issues you're talking about and how they're already difficult uh and now this so just because I know you're looking back in your research onto things that you did two years ago, but like when you look at this uh, and the, the situation where in some states people are voting now, literally voting now, um, and in some states people are mailing in votes, and in some states, you know, it'll be, you know, the best thing to do will be the early vote, but that doesn't start until October 24th, like in New York, it's October 24th or something like that. Um, and how the options are so different, and they've changed because of COVID, and like all of this stuff. Now, all of that needs to be translated, <laughs> you know, and these are things that haven't happened before. So it's not like the standard stuff that needs to be translated where, you know, you have time and you can go get somebody to translate it and so forth. But like this stuff is changing on the fly and you got to find somebody to change. So, I mean, I don't know. I'm just asking for your reaction to all of that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it's, I mean, I think that like in the way that, like if we're talking about, like in the way that 
I mean, COVID has basically just made people work like 18 times harder. So um, at least like from what I can tell of my interlocutors, like I think that they're trying to do all of the stuff that they can possibly do and like disseminate all of the information that they can possibly disseminate and like maybe even more than they were to like, you know, maybe even more than they were two years ago. Um, which includes like updating notices or like sending people information about their mail-in ballots and all of that stuff. But I think there's also like, uh, it's like peak neoliberalism or peak uh, milita- uh, nonprofit industrial complex where like the you services- You almost said military industrial. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, like, and, I and mean, they, I they're, mean... they're, they're connected. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that like, services that should be the job like should be things that the government provides its people where but like instead the work of mobilizing marginalized people it falls on nonprofits and direct service agencies um so direct service agencies aren't nonprofits but like that's just to say that like that all that all of these services that are supposed to be guaranteed to people are basically left in the hands of nonprofit organizations or even people having to mobilize their own networks, right? To like remind their families to vote or um, provide information about like what to do with your mail-in ballot that you can like you don't have to mail your mail-in ballot. You can take it to the Board of Elections directly so that you don't have to worry about whether or not it's making it there on time because the Postal Service is also dissolving. So, I mean, I think I would like argue pretty strongly that like people, it's like, I mean, like, I, I think there was like a discourse maybe like 10 years ago at least, or like early in the 20th century about like declining voter rates or like people's declining interest in democracy, right? Like, I don't think that that's actually the problem. Like, I think that if it were accessible, then people would do it. Like, if so, I don't know. I mean, I, I like, and I, it's definitely worse right now, but I don't know, like, I, I mean, I think that all the people who can be working to do it are working as hard as they possibly can. Uh, or the ones who have always been working. There's a other contingent of people who are fickle about when they decide to to like mobilize. But I mean, the ones who have been doing the work are still just doing the work, you know, like still doing the work as much as they always have been. This will come to bite me in the ass because this is being released right before the election. But uh, I do actually think I I I. I uh, I don't know why I believe this. I don't know why I believe this. And considering I release an episode every two weeks, then literally this episode will be the episode after the, like for the week after the election um, until the next one comes out, which is to say there'll be a whole week where people could just hear me be wrong in what I'm about to say. So, so just getting ready for that. But I actually think that the fact that so many people are at home or have been at home, what it means in a lot of ways is on the negative, there's the whole idea of doom scrolling or you're just like 
we, all we're doing is watching the news and, or, or reading Twitter and they're just like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then and legitimately so, like, you know, it's terrible. Uh, but if this, if the breakdown with the Postal Service, no, sorry, if the Postal Service being broken down, I won't say it's just broke breakdown, um, or the things they're trying to do to the election, like all the stuff that, all the ways that people are trying to suppress things, which they have been doing for years, is just this version of it, uh, were happening, I'm not sure as many people would be aware of all the things they were doing because we're all on the internet all the time. Um, like more so, like not everybody, but I think there's so much being consumed about it that I think some people are taking, ec- the people who are already doing the work are already doing the work. I think there are people taking extra precautions to ensure the, that things that they might not have even thought to do to ensure their votes might be counted. Um, I mean, I hope so, but also like, I mean, I guess it just, it's like the thing about people are spending all their time on the internet is that not everyone is spending their time on the same internet. Yeah, it's uh, true. They could be, yeah, the rabbit. There's, there's yeah. multiple internets. Um, so, and that like, I mean, people are spending a lot of time on Facebook and WhatsApp, which are like breeding grounds for propaganda and, and misinformation as well. So I guess like, I think it's hard to really be able to make any kind of like broad claims about like what people are doing because it's also like very Yeah, it's not really a control depends on right. Like this what, is not what really part of the the like world you occupy basically. That's true. I guess I'm spending all my time on the internet, so I'm a little bit biased towards what I'm doing, right? Um, but yeah, no, that's true. And also, we're never really gonna know because it's just the data would be too messy to figure out anyway. Um, so maybe I maybe I won't know if I'm wrong because it won't be, no, they're not gonna know next week. So you know, um, <laughs> but I just know like I I vote, but I I don't I you know, look at my polling place like the day before the election just to be sure it was in the same place, you know. Right. Um, because sometimes it moved. Um, whereas this time, like, you know, the early voting place, I wanted to make sure, and that turns out it's not where I thought it was, so I'm going to make sure that I go, you know, and the time's a little bit different, you know, so. Right, but, like, that is some, that, again, is, like, individual responsibility, like, that. No, no, like, yeah, no, again, I, yeah a product of like turning voting or like your action as a voter or your like your responsibility as you you as one individual voter being responsible for a collective fate um but that like the responsibility of being responsible is still on the individual vote rather than on society like rather than on the government or like to wherever else to make sure that people have that information so like that I think that is like a key analytic that it's basically missing from the way that we like talk about electoral participation in the U.S. is that the emphasis is like always on the behavior of individual voters 
rather than on like systems that are designed to not be accessible basically um or like not be yeah not to not be accessible i mean that goes back to the language issue right you know um and not just language in terms of the named language but just language in terms of just like diction and like word choice in in jargon and stuff like that you know um because even if there weren't so many just physical barriers and location barriers and all that stuff and all those things that are going on like how do i know what this person like like what people are promoting what people's policies are like all of that stuff is is not and deliberately so not accessible um mm -hmm. and both in terms of the what's actually going what they're actually promising and also in terms of literally the language um and I just tend to think most things, I don't mean this in a mystical fate way. I just mean, it's, I don't, it's not an accident, you know? Mm -hmm. No, it's not an accident. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, if people want, I just feel like if people want to be clear, they'll be clear. There are people who struggle with being clear, but when people struggle with being clear and are trying to be clear, you can still generally tell they're trying and struggling. <laughs> uh, but when people are like, yeah, so just, it's, I told you I was watching Meet the Press the other day, and I don't know why I did this to myself, but it was what is on on Sunday mornings. Um, and just watching the tap dance, just the the like linguistic tap dance between nothing and nothing, and I'm just like, you just spent like 20 minutes saying nothing, and yeah, it is remarkable how like if you are aware of how little they're saying, how little there is in what they're saying but if you aren't necessarily spending all your time thinking about these things then it, it just seems like a competent person on your television screen yes yeah i mean that's also that's a that's the scales of like literacy basically around these there's like different domains of literacy so like one is like the literacy of actually being able to read what's on your ballot or like not just read but like comprehend what's yeah. on your ballot and then the other one is like comprehend like media literacy which is like comprehending and that's like i don't i don't know anything about that i don't like i literally like will never touch that but um i mean that's like also media literacy about what like comprehending what's being said to you in well, these yeah yeah i mean it reminds me of when i used to to um to run the adult education program in the, in the non again at the nonprofit right um you know one of the things that was a problem before i got there was that a lot of the people would um say that they understood things and they didn't understand but like they under they understand the phrase i do you understand <laughs> or they understand the basics of of the language in order to say that they do or don't understand things but and maybe they sort of understand what you're saying or what's being asked of them, but they don't necessarily understand like all the regulations you're trying to explain to them about the class. And there were so many regulations that were put in place by the grant that we had to follow that we then had to explain to the students who spoke enough English to understand like show up at this time, but not necessarily like what they were going to be tested on or so on and so forth. And then we had to be like, well, they didn't understand. And the problem is like, 
is pushed onto the students or to the teachers uh, or to the nonprofit itself and not to the fact that they are put in a position where they don't actually have the things that they need. Um, so it's fun. It's a good, it's a good yes. system. Indeed. Um, well, we, so, I mean, like, but one of the things that, that um, is important to you um, or it has been said is important to you, you can agree or disagree, is, you know, the way we as, um, especially as minoritized scholars, you know, push what we do into the public in some way. I know that you are a quote unquote inconsistent podcaster. Um, and I, I, I'm consistent, but I'm not sure how good I am at it. Um, and, but I, I, I don't just do this for fun, but because I think that, you know, especially if we're not from the dominant group that's, um, promulgating much of epistemology and so forth, uh, it's very important to do, but I also wonder how much it matters sometimes. What? Like publicly engaged scholarship. Like it's like, who's, who's the, what, what I've been seeing is I get a lot of Hosannas from people who are, you know, in our same position, like other, you know, emerging scholars. And that's good, I mean, you know, to find my people who support us, right? Um, and then there are people who are, you know, more senior to us, who have sh shown us respect and shown us, kindness and that's really well appreciated but I still wonder who's really listening like really listening where, where the levers can be pushed you know what I'm saying I try to do this in the work I do in the classes I teach that are like independent classes but like again even those students who really like what I do I, I don't know if they're going to go do what they say they're going to go do <laughs> so you know I mean like I always wonder like even if I, people find what we do interesting how, how do we get the levers to be to to be how, how does pressure get applied um, through, yeah. through scholarship in some way? I mean, I guess that that, it's not to say that I don't think about audience, but I think that like, I try not to think about it in that way because I think it's, it can easily be too fatalistic uh, that nobody's listening or that it's like too esoteric. Um, or like too niche for broader audiences. Like I think those are things to be cautious of and like to be attendant to, but letting myself become, like go down that rabbit hole is like not good for me as far as like self-motivation goes. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I and I think like, so like, I think that what I was sort of like starting to think about when you said like minoritized scholars and engage like public scholarship or engaged scholarship is like, in some ways it's like actually very compulsive. Like, like I, like I, there is a way that, I mean, I feel the, the, the line I think, which I think came from one of my fellowship applications is basically, it's not a happy coincidence of my research, but like integral to like, the work that I do is true in the sense that I do feel very like committed to that as a principle of my work. But the, the way that it came about, I would say is like actually just from like compulsively needing a space to speak like outside of the scripts that are available to like that are available within academia that like feel more 
comfortable or like um not, I mean I don't not natural necessarily but like is this is like a space of my own where I'm articulating what my thoughts are rather than like the formalized spaces that are uh that I'm told are where I should be producing scholarship so like in that sense I would say like for me it kind of started very compulsively that I needed a like a way to process whatever the things like whatever the things were but on the other hand, like when I think about public scholarship and when I think about engaged research, I don't, I guess that I'm not limiting it just to even the written, like, like whatever the pro, I'm not limiting it to the product, basically. Like, I, and, and I'm like, and I'm not even limiting it to like what by product, I mean, not just like a podcast or an article or like a piece of writing, but also like not a product in the sense that like, I'm the person conveying information to other people. Um, and so like, I mean, one of the like most important or like central things in my field work was that my interlocutors had like very strong feelings about like what kinds of reciprocity they expected from me in order to like give me their time or, or their knowledge, um, which is like part of where like working at this nonprofit sort of like immersion was that my interlocutors like needed to see that I was investing in their projects on their terms rather than simply just like being there for my research and collecting information from people and not leaving. So that I think of that also as engaged research or engaged scholarship, which is like has nothing necessarily to do with the conclusions that I'm going to draw, but is a part of like a broader praxis um, in, in community with other people who are doing particular kinds of work. So that's, so I like think about it more broadly in terms of like what it means to be in conversation with people uh, than simply like whatever my writing is or whatever the things that I create as one individual um, are. You know, I, I think I came off more fatalistic than I am. Um, <laughs> oh, no, it's okay. I mean, I'm not, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> uh, because I, I honestly, the reason I got into doing more public things is, is when I was in my first semester of my, my program, I went to meet with the dean because I'm impatient and nosy like that. Um, like there was no reason for me to do that, but I did. And I asked him some questions about, you know, like I'm interested in, you know, some race, you know, but I'm not really sure what angle, and, 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 you know, just conversation, right? And um, he said, honestly, your cohort is small, which is fine. Like I knew that, right? Um, but you may or may not find people who want to do exactly what you want to do, um, which is an honest thing to say. He said, honestly, you should go and find them. They're out there, right? And I was like, where? <laughs> he said, because <laughs> I was just like, what? What? Like, well, you know, I'm going to go to a conference and I meet people. And that's not going to happen that often, you know? Um, and he said, no, look for them online. Like, you can find them. You can. Um, and I was skeptical because I had a Twitter account since 2009, but like only used it when there was like a, a live sporting event and was like reacting to a bunch of things at the same time. Um, but I was like, all right, fine. I changed my name to the initial thing. Um, to so it's like, well, I got to just, it's basically a new person, you know? And yeah, and I think that some of, and I'm including this in my, my research, like my, what I'm learning from interactions online, I'm not including the interaction itself, but like my reaction, right. my reaction to the interaction, um, 
it's sort of like, I mean, they're like autoethnographic field notes, right? Um, and like, what I think is valuable about being in the, I don't know how, I mean, it's public and anybody could read it, but like not everyone's could, not everyone is reading it, everyone could read it, is that like, I know if I come out with some, some terrible hot take, you know, some people might, might tell me, people who know more about it. So I need to make sure that the things I say, you know, uh, I, I am more concerned and I don't mean in the sense that it, it stops me from doing it, but like, I am more concerned with the assessment of the fellow emerging and maybe the word is, you know, junior, I shouldn't say younger because some of them aren't that young, uh, scholars who engage in the same type of research that I put out there publicly than I am in what the freaking reviewers say. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, I like, yeah, I mean, my pe I would like, I mean, I am like largely invested in my peers as opposed to like whatever, like star or like senior Scott, like, yeah, I mean, I think that there, there, like, in that, and that's a different, there's just, I, I think also that, like, that's a different kind of engaged research, like, there, that, also, that, mostly, that engaged research is not just one thing, so, like, I think there are all of these different ways that people can practice it, and one of those spaces is online, where you are, like, holding yourself accountable to a broader audience of people than just who's in your department or who's going to read your, like your journal articles or whatever. Yeah. Um, what, what, yeah what are the most, the most read journal articles, like a couple hundred people. So, you know. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. And, and I mean, that's like another day. <laughs> uh, like, anyways. Um, so, yes. I mean, that I also, that I also agree with. And like, that is like where, not like so, I mean, a major part of my investment, I think, like the only reason I'm still invested in anthropology is because of my peers, um, both in my department, but also the one like the relationships that I've cultivated online. Um, so, yeah. And I, I I know that I wouldn't. I just I'm a member of the state TESOL, the you know New York State. TESOL, there's one in every state. Actually, there's five in Texas. Um, it's a big state. Um, but I'm a member of it, and I won an office recently, which I never would have run for something like that or, or won it if I hadn't, you know, become someone who, uh, who when, I, when I tweet at the international TESOL organization, they listen to me, which is funny. I'm just like, oh, this is cool. <laughs> and not, not positively, like I criticize them and they, they, <laughs> right. because they're terrible. Um, and right. I talk about them a lot and why they're bad and they don't, they don't like me. But, but the people in the state thing, they like what I do. So it works. And I'm like, okay, this is like, I actually did a thing that mattered because I got them to take down like a like horrible racist and sexist post from their website. Um, and I was like, this, th these are small things that, you know, it's not, you know, giving everybody healthcare, but it's, it's, it's a thing that will cause slightly less harm to people. Um, and in the past, they wouldn't listen to me. And so being at a, being at a point where I can get 
something like that to be slightly different, I think is valuable. Um, and I think that, you know, you're definitely one of the people online who, uh, if I, like you're one of the people I keep in mind when I think about the things that I write because I know that I don't know nearly obviously you're you we're studying different things right so like obviously you know more about what you do than I know more about what I do so that, that's obvious. <laughs> you know that's so me saying you know more about anthropology of course but like um just thinking about aspects of society that I, I don't have the experience and the lens to look at you know you don't always say anything to me necessarily but I know you could <laughs> and uh i you know i i like for example i i i'm in, i've had i've taught you know my seminars on like uh decentering whiteness and english language teaching right and um i've had some interested south asian participants um like like actually in south asia uh south asia is not you know what i mean um <laughs> and they come into the class and they ask me a couple of questions and there are some things that like I only know some bit about because they're asking me things that I'm just like, oh, let me tell you, I don't actually know. Uh, but talking to you and talking to other people, I feel like I'm not going to be at that level, but I can at least, you know, benefit. And hopefully I'm able to provide a perspective to people from my angle in, in, in a similar way. Because like people ask me about like, we don't have that many white people here is what they've said to me. Right. And I'm like, that's true you don't um they're like so how can because they, but they're in my seminar so they, they find it relevant to them but they're like how can i make this feel relevant to my peers here talking about these things and so i end up talking a little bit more more about class and things like that but i also don't have a deep understanding of the caste system um like i i know from the outside basically but like i can't go over there and pretend i know anything about that um and it's something that like you know, it's having all building from peers like this. I think is a is a is a is a way that I think was not done until fairly recently in a in a broader sense in these fields. You know, like people built with their very close peers, but like putting it out there and, and being able to know that people in your peer group would you know tell you that, that that's not a cool thing to say, <laughs> sir. Uh, yeah. Or not even like if it's offensive, but just like you haven't, you know, nuanced that point enough. It's not, I know that's not a verb, but, you know, given it, given it more nuance, shaded it in a little bit. Uh, and I also, I don't delete tweets unless I spelled something wrong. But usually I just say, man, I spelled that wrong and I pointed out. Um, mostly. I've done it before. Uh, because, you know, I think that things need to stand to scrutiny unless you, I'm saying something deeply offensive or something, but hopefully I don't do that. Um, so that was me in a long way saying thanks for, for engaging with me in general. I don't <laughs> oh, just mean tonight, but I just mean in general on the internet because um, there's, I never would have been engaged with, with anyone with your um, scholarly background and, you know, like why would we be at the same conference, right? Forget, I mean, in 2020, other conferences, I mean. but you know, so, um, you know maybe, you know, but like, it would have had to be one that I was already in the same place as, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes they put a bunch that are similar together in the, in the same place. Right. Like, TESOL is in the same place as, you know, mm -hmm. like the, the AAL conference, right? So, okay, yeah. fine, maybe I go to both. But like, it would have to be if I wanted to go to the place, then yeah, yeah. we might both be there and so right. forth. Um, and, and one of the only sad things, and, for, you know, even 
not even thinking about the pandemic for the moment is how many of the people that I've actually connected with that I may never actually meet. <laughs> well, you're not that far though, but. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's I'm cool. actually going to Rhode Island soon, so. Cool, it's, it's a funny place. My um, brother-in-law lives there. Cool. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's like, I'm blanking a little bit because uh, rapidly approaching my my bedtime but um yeah I mean there's like a lot there just in terms of the types of relationships that people are able to build and like hold accountability um to each other in ways that seem less possible in in like your immediate surroundings um but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm like waiting for the next in real life uh, thing that I can go to. So I think it's also like having both together is good. I think right. it's like- Well, what's, what, what this has made me understand is how important it is to have the choice, right? To yeah. be able to choose to connect with people in this way. Mm -hmm. But also if there was the option, because I no longer feel intense pressure to go to everything mm -hmm. you know i'm now i'm just like okay i guess i don't really feel the need to do that um but right. then there's some things i really wish would occur or had occurred or will occur or whatever um so mm -hmm. that sort of to put a pin in all of it though since for six days this will be before the election <laughs> uh you know uh are there any sort of lessons in your just like me running out of energy brain that you want to share with people um, related to how important it is for people to have language access. There's probably by the time this comes out in October, not that much to be done about it, but just in general, it's important and it's very important considering what we all, well, what needs to occur. Yeah, and I mean, well, I think that I like, at least as far as this election goes, I have like decided to mostly abstain from election takes. Uh, oh, I wasn't saying tell people. No, who no, I'm, I'm, I, no, no, no. I'm, I'm saying I'm just like prefacing what I'm about to say though. Um, partly because I think like I don't want to be a part of reiterating the idea that like what's going to change our society is like anybody's one individual action uh, this year in particular. Um, but that like, I mean, language access is important for elections and that's like the particular angle that I am looking at it in this particular project. But it's like also that's like a thing that's relevant in healthcare. I mean, it's like healthcare spaces in schooling, like, every possible facet of like our collective life like that it's and so it's not just in elections that like these questions of language access um come up and also that like it's not just about, like at, at least i mean one of the things that i'm also kind of like trying to like muddle my way through is the incommensurability of like how we think about 
race or language in the US and then mapping that onto other groups of people um, that like there is a tension that needs to be like paid to not reinforcing like what racial and ethnic category or linguistic categories are in the US onto the like immigrant, like the migrant groups that live in the US because they don't like, it's not just that a brown, like a person from India shares the same language or linguistic practice as like another person from India, even though they have the same like hypothetical national background. So, um, and that like applies even more broadly for South Asians in general. So that's like, and which is also true actually like in like the, there are varieties of Spanish, right? There are varieties of English. Um, so it's not even just that like, that's true in these contexts uh, where the languages are different or like dialects are different. But um, yeah, like thinking through the particulars uh, is also super important. Um, so yeah, I think that's where I am in my brain <laughs> right now. Well, I mean, that's a good point though, thinking through the particulars. Um, because one of the conflicting things about a, you know, like I'm not going to sit here and tell someone not to vote, but as you're saying, we can't promote it as if it is a panacea, right? Well, well, you voted, and if it goes the way you want it to go, I don't mean you, but the way that one wants it to go, then everything will be fixed. Mm -hmm. Because... If that were the case, then it would have been fixed a long time ago. <laughs> like if, if, if that, if we just like got that one person in there and then everything would be better, well, then things would be better by now. So yeah, um, ultimately we are just replacing a figurehead at the front of a system that needs to change entirely. Mm -hmm. So, or, and several figureheads, because there's obviously other elections, as a presidential election, you know. Right. As many elections, you know what I mean. Uh, figureheads, plural. Um, so yeah, that's not an inspiring thing to say, but it's true. Here we are. <laughs> yeah, 2020 is fun. All right, thanks for joining me. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah, we, uh, we 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 talked about what I said we would talk about about language access and about um, you know how we define publicly engaged scholarship because I actually. Um, thought it ended up being really interesting in terms of how we actually see that concept because it's it's thrown around a lot people have been saying that for a while you know Indeed. we're not the first yeah. people to say oh it should be publicly engaged scholars oh yes yes <laughs> yes oh we should be publicly you know come on yeah. uh so both sort of redefining the term and and in some ways kind of um you know complicating it, I think is really important for people who are listening. And since most people who listen to this are in some ways publicly engaged scholars, uh, I think it'll give them something to think about. <laughs>